Jesus commands that we go and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say go and make converts, but go and make disciples. The Matthew quote continues, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So it means teaching them the whole counsel of God as seen in the Bible, and then helping them to live in obedience to it, not just part of it, but all of it. And uh, it's hard work. Yeah, it takes time to make disciples. It takes time uh, opening God's word with them week after week, year after year, until hopefully they reach a point where they're fully mature and they're passing it on to their own children and able to teach others. How do you teach the Bible to people who aren't able to read it? This is a question that Joelle Kenny, our guest today, has had to wrestle with. Born and raised in England, Joelle has spent the past decade in Cambodia and now serves as a Bible teacher based in Ratnakiri province in the northeast of the country, teaching the Bible in a number of different ministries, including to illiterate women of the Krung tribe. She is the author of This Life I Now Live, an account of her work in Cambodia. Today, we sat down with Joelle to ask her about the convictions that led her to move across the world to teach people the gospel, as well as how she is seeking to raise Bible teachers within the region to go out into Cambodia and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. My name's Leo Elborn. And my name's Tiff Stromso. And this is the Bible Matters podcast, encouraging faithful Bible teaching and ministry. Joelle Kenny, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Joelle, when you meet someone new and they ask, what do you do? What do you say? Well, usually I will begin by telling them I live in Cambodia and that I work with hill tribe people in a province called Ratanakiri and that my work mostly involves teaching the Bible. So to small groups of youth or women who live out in the hill tribe villages, but also that much of my work involves training and equipping them to be able to teach the Bible to others. Joelle, I don't know that much about Ratanakiri. Do you mind just telling us a bit about what it's like? Yeah, so Ratanakiri is in the far northeast of Cambodia. Um, it's a province predominantly inhabited by hill tribe people. I think there are eight or so different tribes. Um, it's mostly rural and hilly with lots of forest and remote villages scattered across a wide area. Um, the further you drive from the main provincial town where I live, the roads become unpaved roads. So during the hot season, the roads are dusty and it's like driving on sand. And during the rainy season, the roads are muddy and slippery and any driving at all is really quite dangerous, a bit like driving on snow, I guess. <laughs> and uh, the markets generally sell fruit and veg and meat and fish. Um, when I first moved there, things like milk, cheese, yogurt, cereals and pasta, they were only available a 10 hour bus ride away in the capital city. Um, but thankfully, nowadays, there is a small supermarket near my house where I can get those items. So I'm very grateful. Uh, I don't know about you, Tiff. I feel gutted when I have to walk two minutes down the road to go up when <laughs> yeah. I forget to buy the milk. Absolutely. When I have to jump on my bike. Oh, no, I don't want to be doing that. Doesn't take 10 hours, though. No, thankfully. Joelle, you said that there's eight or so tribes in this region. Um, you work with one of them in particular, the Krung tribe, is that right? Yes, that's right. Can so you tell um, us a little bit about them. Yeah, so I work with the Krung tribe. Um, they have a population of 40,000 in Cambodia and another 50,000 across the border in Laos. Um, and I think the gospel arrived around 25 years ago. 
And today in Cambodia, among the Krung, there are now 500 believers. Um, as a people group, they are subsistence farmers, so they're growing rice and vegetables for their own family consumption. Um, I think their only cash crop is cashew nuts, which they sell to neighbouring Vietnam. Um, they still cook on open fires outdoors. When you're driving down the roads, you can easily identify a hill tribe person by the bamboo baskets that they wear on their backs, a bit like a rucksack. And they interact with the Cambodian people to buy and sell goods, but otherwise they live quite separately to the rest of the country. And so that's subsistence farming. They literally are growing the food that they need to eat. That's right. Yeah. So they have they their... They don't rely on anyone else. No, they have their main uh, rice harvest and the, the rice that they harvest um, at that time of the year, they have to use for the, re- the whole of the year. The whole it's got year, to last plan the whole year. Wow. Yeah. Joel, can you tell us a little bit about what kind of beliefs are prevalent in the Krung tribe? What, what do they stand for? What do they put their confidence in? Yeah, so like most hill tribe people, they are animist. So that means that they believe there are evil spirits everywhere out to harm them. So for them, sickness is not caused by germs and accidents are not bad luck and a bad harvest will not be caused by bad weather, but they believe that those difficulties are caused by the evil spirits wreaking havoc wow. in their lives. Um, and so day to day, they live in great fear and they try to find ways of appeasing the evil spirits. Um, so it can either be by following a strict set of rules pro- proclaimed by the witch doctors or by offering the sacrifice of an animal. So they can do that um, just as a family unit or sometimes the whole village gets together and sacrifices animals. But another issue true of the people I work with is that they've not really had much of an education. So literacy rates are very low. And this means that I need to slightly adapt the way I teach the Bible to them, especially with the women's groups where nearly all of them are completely illiterate. I'd love to hear a little bit more about teaching the Bible to illiterate people in a moment. But can I just ask you, can you just give us a sense of what your day to day is like living in Ratanakiri? Yeah, so I actually have six teenage girls living with me. So they're all professing Christians. And during the day, they go to a local government school. And I spend time with them every evening at seven o'clock teaching them the Bible. And so the purpose of that is to mature their faith and also um, having a vision that one day they can teach the Bible to others also. Then on Thursdays, I visit two villages. So one in the morning and one in the afternoon where I teach the Bible to groups of women. And on a Friday night, I travel out to a village again, where I meet and help teach the Bible to a group of youth. And probably outside of the seven o'clock meetings every evening and the Thursday and Friday groups, I'm probably prepping for Bible studies or meeting with other missionaries to pray for our ministries that we're involved with, things like that. Just out of interest, what do you do in your spare time in Cambodia? Are there any hobbies? I don't have a lot of spare time, to be quite honest. Really? But I do, I do like looking after the garden. Yeah, I do like doing a little bit of gardening. Um, and we do have some, there are some hotels which have, um, which have swimming pools. So every now and again, I will take myself for a nice swim. I'm right in thinking you were born and raised in England. So how did you end up moving to Cambodia? Yeah, so it's quite a long story. But um, <laughs> to begin with, I, I trained as an art teacher And I think one of the things I particularly liked about teaching is that it's a job that you can travel the world with. So you can teach at Christian international schools all over the world. Um, The first country I taught in was India. And I remember I had a wonderful time there for three years. Um, Then after that, I went to teach at a school in Cambodia. And uh, this was a kind of a different experience because whilst I was teaching at the school in Cambodia, instead of going to an international church, 
which would consist of mostly expats, I decided instead to go to a local Cambodian church. Um, I really wanted to have Cambodian friends outside the school gates. I remember feeling a great curiosity about the Cambodian people and their history and all that they've been through. And I remember just wanting to kind of get to know them better and have Cambodian friends. Um, so the church that I got involved with was a good church, but it had no weekly Bible study groups. They only met on a Sunday. Um, now, for me personally, it was small group weekly Bible studies that really matured me as a Christian. So I remember feeling that my Cambodian friends were missing out, not having a, a midweek Bible study group. Um, and I ended up asking them, you know, did they, did they want to meet midweek with me to study God's word? And they said yes. So that was a good start. Um, the group quickly grew to around 20 people. So some were Christians and some weren't. So the Christians were bringing their non-Christian neighbors and friends. Wow. Uh, which was really great of them, you know, really great. Was all of this in English? I was teaching at, a, at a, an international school, so I hadn't learned the, the local language. Okay. I was doing it through translators. Yeah, uh, I was doing okay, it through translators. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we got to, together every week. We studied the Bible and over the course of a couple of years, studying God's word together, a few of the non-Christians became Christians, wow. including one whole family, which was just so exciting. And I think it was through that group and studying God's word every week and seeing the gospel bear fruit in people's lives that I decided I'd quite like to be a missionary in Cambodia, that I'd quite like to teach the Bible more full time. Um, but I remember thinking, well, you know, what my church back home in the UK thinks about that is, is important. I want to know if they're supportive of that idea or not and what they think. Um, so after three years in Cambodia, I returned home. I shared the idea with them. They were supportive of the idea. And so that felt kind of like a confirmation for me that it was something I should pursue. Um, so then I first did some Bible training for a couple of years, and then I went back to Cambodia as a mission partner. Um, and I think my first two years back, I was busy learning the language. And then after that, I moved to Ratnakiri to work with the Hill Tribe people. So just on that, so there you were getting ready to go, I guess, uh, into the mission field in Cambodia. You wanted Bible training. What exactly did that Bible training look like? Yeah, so I wasn't, you know, bothered about getting a theological degree. That was not so important to me. But what was important was learning how to read the Bible and then how to teach it to others. So I spent two years doing a Bible course that my church back home ran, um, ran in its own buildings, um, which included having Bible lessons together, but then also the practical experience of teaching at its weekly small group Bible studies and teaching the Bible one-to-one -one with new believers. And so it included uh, lots of practice and lots of getting observed and really helpful feedback on how I could improve my teaching. And can I just ask, you, you could have done lots of different things as a missionary in Cambodia. You could have been involved with social projects or welfare projects or just gone back into education. But why did you make it your primary task to go and teach the Bible? Yeah, so I think I'd like to take us to Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20. So in that passage, Jesus commands that we go and make disciples of all nations. And I think the word disciples is really important. Um, it doesn't say go and make converts, but go and make disciples. And we don't really make disciples by blowing into an area, sharing the gospel and then blowing out again. I think it's much deeper than that. And the Matthew quote continues, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So it means teaching them the whole counsel of God as seen in the Bible and then helping them to live in obedience to it, not just part of it, but all of it. 
And uh, it's hard work. Yeah, it takes time to make disciples. It takes time uh, opening God's word with them week after week, year after year, until hopefully they reach a point where they're fully mature and they're passing it on to their own children and able to teach others. That's so amazing. I guess sometimes I, I forget that is the Great Commission. And I do think of mission work as what you just said, going, kind of getting those converts, uh, you know, taking a picture and then coming back. But actually, yeah, that is so helpful, what you just shared. It is about that disciple-making instead. We're now going to think a little bit about the Bible studies that you run. Now, you told us that you learnt the local language, Khmer, and that means you're teaching in that language, not your mother tongue. What difference does that make to you and to the woman that you're teaching? Yes, yeah, so I think all missionaries should spend time learning the local language rather than using translators if they can. Um, I think it demonstrates respect for the people that they are ministering to, it demonstrates respect for their language and their culture to have spent time learning it. I also think it's really hard to build genuine relationships or to walk alongside the locals in a way that is natural and comfortable if you're only using translators. So, for example, um, you want those you're discipling to be able to call you in an emergency or to call you when there's a pastoral issue or when they've got something um, going on in their families, uh, because those moments are teachable moments, too. And you're never going to be able to truly share your lives with each other if you if you can't speak the same language. You said that these women are a lot of them are illiterate or the literacy rates are very low. How then do you teach them about a book where you need to be able to read? Yeah, so with the youth and the dorm girls, they are literate. So I will work through books in the Bible with them just as I would here in the UK. Um, so, for example, with the youth and the dorm girls, we have studied Mark's gospel. We've studied the book of James and also the book of Acts. But with the women's groups, they are mostly illiterate. So with them, I have decided to do more like a series of Bible studies that are mostly using narrative. So, for example, a series from the gospels of people's encounters with Jesus and how it changed their lives. Or maybe a series on the parables that Jesus told or the journey to the cross, or the life and ministry of Paul and how he suffered for the sake of the gospel, as, as you see it in the book of Acts and 1 and 2 Corinthians, but using narrative mostly to teach them. Did you learn to do that when you got there, or were people already doing that? How did you figure out how to do that? I did do a course called Storytelling. Um, it was just a brief uh, sort of one-week course. I don't actually use the whole, <laughs> the whole of the storytelling method. Uh, but I've kind of adapted it sure. to a way that works for me and works better for the women that I'm working with. And can you tell me about a time teaching narrative like that has worked particularly well with the people you're ministering to? Yeah, so the women that I work with, they are very persecuted by their families and their neighbours for their faith. And most of them have unbelieving husbands and unbelieving children. And, you know, as illiterate women, they can't comfort or encourage themselves to keep going each day by reading scripture in a way that we would. Um, but because our weekly Bible studies, in our weekly Bible studies, they've been learning uh, maybe about the ministry of Paul and how he was severely persecuted. That's an encouragement to them. So, for example, they know that he was beaten, 
They know that he was imprisoned. They know that he was shipwrecked. They know that he was left for dead, hungry and cold. And they also know that he didn't give up, but that he continued in his faith and continued serving Christ no matter what it cost him personally. Um, So I remember that was a Bible study that was particularly helpful for a lady called Matt. So Matt's husband um, is the village witch doctor. He is furious that his wife has become a Christian. His persecution was so severe that he even went to the village chief to try and have it forbidden, uh, to try and be able to forbid his wife from going to church and to Bible study. Um, But it was during that time that we were studying about the life of Paul. And I remember Matt uh, was in tears after one lesson and she said, you know, I think I'm persecuted, but it's still nothing compared to what Paul went through. I've never been beaten or left for dead for my faith. And so I think for Matt and for the other women in the group, uh, when they themselves are persecuted, they can remember stories like the life of Paul and be encouraged by his example and to keep living for the gospel and not give up. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Um, does it ever cross your mind to teach them how to read? How do you prioritise that against teaching them narratives that they can go away and learn and recall to mind when they need to? Well, the um, the younger generation coming up can uh, read. Yeah. So I think now that we've got a generation coming up that can read, we kind of invest in them in, them. in, in, in the sense of hoping that they will be able to teach the Bible to others, especially. Yeah. But with the women, a lot of the women that I'm working with are quite elderly. Okay. So they're yeah. really not at a yeah. point in their lives no. where they could start so learning how to read. They're really clinging to these stories. They're really clinging to these stories. They yeah. must know them so well and kind yeah. of be able to picture them in their minds. Yeah. Wow. They loved the story of Elijah for some reason, and they still bring it up today, you know, two, three years later, the story of Elijah. So it really stuck in their heads. Yeah. Which story? Or just the whole thing? The whole shebang? I think just the whole shebang, okay. just lots of different <laughs> aspects. But that, that still seems to be a, a story that's encouraging them years on. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's interesting, you know, we do forget the Bible was written predominantly for illiterate people. And actually, mm. I guess people through history have held these stories like that. Why do you think, just stepping back a little bit, why do you think teaching narrative does work well? I think that narrative is easier for the women to engage with. Um, It's easier for them to commit to memory and it's easier for them to keep, therefore, meditating on. And also stories are easier for them to apply to themselves and also retell to others. So I, I get that, that stories are really helpful and useful for our memories, they're easier to remember than a list of bullet Mm. points. Yeah. But I guess to push you on that kind of, why do you need to teach them the Bible at all? Couldn't you teach them just a list of truths of theological principles? Why, why do you go to such long extents to teach them narrative stories? Mm. I think, you know, God works through his word and that his word is powerful. So if you think for a moment about creation Uh, God spoke and creation came into being. Jesus spoke and lepers were cleansed. Uh, Jesus spoke and blind eyes were opened. Jesus taught and people's lives were changed and they left everything to follow him. And, you know, I'm convinced that God still speaks today. He speaks to us through the Bible. And I believe that the Bible, God's word, is just as powerful today. So people study it and their hearts and their lives are changed forever. I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes um, when I'm studying the Bible with people. I can see their whole demeanour change and I can tell at that point that something in the passage that we're studying together is either convicting them or challenging them or comforting them or encouraging them. And, you know, true to form, at the end of the study, they were verbalised how meaningful the passage was to them and how it had really touched their hearts. And I guess over time, 
um, having studied the Bible with people, you see them beginning to live and speak differently. Um, you see them living and speaking with increased faith and increased conviction of the truth of the gospel. And Joel, sorry, just to take a step back, but we're talking about Bible studies. When you say a Bible study, what do you actually mean? You were sadly a lot of small group Bible studies seem to end up being the leader preaching their thoughts on the passage. Um, I see it a lot in Cambodia, um, watching other missionaries uh, do their work. But I think a real Bible study is different from that. I think it's grappling with the text together as a group. And so it should really be, ideally, I think, the leader asking questions to get the group thinking for themselves about the passage. I mean, I think it's interesting from experience. It is easier to just sit there and say your own <laughs> thoughts, isn't it? In it lots is. of ways, I wish I could do that. It's actually quite hard work to think, how am I going to get these people working on the text? In general, why do you think a Bible study is an effective way to teach the scriptures? When we hear a sermon, I think the work is done for you. All you need to do is listen and ponder. But when a scripture passage is opened and the leader asks questions of that passage, the group has to do the work. They have to do the work of extracting the meaning from the passage and how to apply it to themselves. And it gives them the tools to know how to understand God's word and how to engage with it. And I think scripture goes deeper sometimes if we had worked hard at the text for ourselves. Why do you think that particularly works in your setting, that kind of group grappling, listening to one another, sharpening one another? Why does that work so well with these Cambodian women and the younger girls in your dorm? Well, in the context I work in, um, it's normal to not actively listen to speeches. <laughs> so Cambodia is largely Buddhist. And the times that I have walked into a Buddhist temple, what I've seen is monks on a mo microphone giving sermons and people are popping in and out, lighting candles and making a quick bow before an idol. Um, but I've never seen anyone sitting and listening to the speeches really? or the sermons being made. Yeah, It's quite ritualistic. You turn up, yes. you just sit there, you daydream if you want That's to daydream. Right. <laughs> and so the sermons, they just continue on in the background and no one's listening. And it's the same when speeches happen at public events, like at schools or in government buildings. You know, these speeches are going on, but the audience, people are just sitting, chatting to their neighbour or just snoozing. Sounds a little bit like my sermons, to be honest with you. <laughs> so the Cambodians seem to consider their bodily presence to be enough. It's not considered important to be fully listening to what's being taught or what's being said. Um, and I think this is so ingrained in the culture that when a Christian invites a friend mm. to church, that friend is perplexed as to why the person who invited them is listening to the sermon rather than chatting away oh, to wow. them. They probably wow. feel that they're being a bit rude, really. You know, you've invited me to church and now you're just sitting you're there and not to talking me. to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in this context, you know, if you really want people actively listening uh, to what's happening in the Bible study, then asking questions so that the group needs to be thinking and responding well, it, you know, it keeps them awake and paying attention and draws them into what's being said. And so I think although this type of uh, study is countercultural and it takes a while for them to get used to it, in time, they have told me that they've really, really benefited from it. Mm, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, Joelle, can you tell us what's your aim whenever you open up the Bible with either an individual or in a small group like we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, I just want them to get to know God better and to love Jesus more, really and that their faith would be strengthened. 
and that they would grow in the fullness of Christ, so mature and hungry for uh, the Bible and, and the solid food that that is. Um, for those that can read, I would also want them to catch the vision of reading God's word with others and to also one day be equipped to serve in that way also. So yeah, being able to teach the Bible to others also. mentioned that you run a dormitory. You have a bunch of teenage girls living with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like and how did you end up doing that? Yeah, so in the villages I work in, because the people are mostly illiterate, there's a real lack of people who can teach the Bible. So enabling a few people from the churches to get a complete education and become fully literate was something I felt passionately about. So I opened a girls' dorm where young women from remote villages that had no middle or high school education could come and stay with me. Is that a normal thing to open a dorm? Uh, there are, there are it's because, because it's a hill tribe people area, there are some dorms in town for boys, but there weren't actually any for girls. So that was, uh, yeah, my, the unique thing that I was doing was opening one for girls and opening cool. a one that was a Christian. Yeah. It was for Christian girls, yeah. So during the day, they go to a local government school right near my house. And then in the evenings, I think I've said it already, we get together to study the Bible at seven o'clock. Um, so the girls that I took in, they're all Christians. And at the weekends, they return home uh, to their villages so they can see their families, but also because I want them to still be involved with their home churches. Mm -hmm. That 7 p.m. Bible study you mentioned that you run every day, what made you want to do that? Because my vision in opening the dorm has always been that um, I can invest in the girls spiritually and equip them to be able to teach the Bible to others, um, I wanted to make the best use of the time that I had with them. So especially as these girls, um, like all high tri hill tribe people, will never likely go to Bible college or have any further education after high school. So in my mind, the years that I had with them needed to be something like their Bible training years. Mm. And that's why I decided we would do Bible study together every evening at seven o'clock. And I do remember at the beginning wondering if after a long day at school it would work, you know, would the girls be too tired? Mm, mm. Would they be too fidgety? Would they have too much homework to do and things like that? But actually our evening meetings are also our family time together. Um, it's a time to study God's word and be built up together. But it's also a time where we really connect with each other and we encourage each other and we laugh and cry together and share with each other. Um, and so it's actually ended up becoming a really precious time for us all. And as far as I can see, the, the dorm girls actually really enjoy it. Oh, that, that sounds really beautiful. You do that every day at 7pm. Yeah, every day. Now, I think you mentioned to me at some point that you have an employee who helps you. Um, is that actually in the dorm, this employee? Yeah. So when I opened the dorm, I employed, uh, we call her a dorm helper. Okay. So she is herself a local tribal lady and she helps with the everyday duties of the dorm. She actually cooks us our lunch. So we eat together as a family for lunch. Um, but she also helps teach the Bible in the evenings. Oh, great. So she's also a Christian. She's also a Christian. Great. And I wanted the dorm girls to have a role model of a tribal lady like them, who is both a mature Christian and who can also teach the Bible really well. So I didn't want them to think that teaching the Bible is just something white Western ladies do, mm. but that it's something that a local lady can do too and do it really well. 
And yeah, she's her name is Yet and she has been just the right person and her Bible teaching is excellent and the girls really love her. Joelle, I'd love to get a glimpse of these Bible studies that you do with these dorm girls. Can you just tell us a little bit more about how they run and what they look like? Yeah, so each time we get together, um, the evening is led actually by one of the dorm girls. So uh, they take it in turns. So whoever is leading, they will start by opening the meeting with a prayer. And they, then they will lead us in, in singing a couple of songs that they themselves have chosen. Uh, then either myself or the dorm helper or another missionary who's living with us, her name is Muriel. Uh, so either the dorm helper, myself or Muriel would teach a 30 minute Bible lesson. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it goes up to 45 minutes. Um, and so in the, in the last year, for example, we've studied Psalms, we've studied the book of Acts and James. But on Thursdays, it's different. So on Thursdays, uh, the dorm girls take turns actually leading the Bible lesson of their own choosing. And this gives them regular practice of preparing and teaching a Bible lesson to others. And it's been really encouraging because they're doing it really well. Are they generally happy to do it or are they quite nervous about it? No, they're, they're happy to do it. I mean, I... Um, so at the moment, it's the three oldest girls who are leading the Bible lessons. Um, we've got some three, we've got three younger girls who's just started with us um, about a year ago. So for their first year, I won't make them do it. Mm. Okay. But in their second year, they need to start doing it. They know what's coming. They know what's coming. <laughs> yeah. So I'm telling them to get, you know, emotionally ready for it. <laughs> Over the years, what kind of fruit have you been seeing in the young women you've been studying the Bible with in your dorm? Yeah. So as I said, there's currently six girls in the dorm. Um, three of them are already teaching on a Thursday night. But those same three girls are already teaching the Bible in villages also. So one of the girls is teaching the youth at her church on a Saturday night. And the other two girls have been going into a village that has no church and has no believers. And they've been going in on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And what they've been doing there is gathering the children and teaching the Bible to the children in the village. And one of the nice things about that group is that it's not just children coming, but also grandparents. Grandparents have been coming to see what the children are doing and hearing the stories alongside the children. That is so, so amazing, isn't it? And I guess that is that Matthew 28 principle, I suppose, that you've not mm. just made converts, but actually these girls are becoming disciples who are going out and making disciples. They've become the missionaries. They're putting you out of work. They are. <laughs> and that's exactly what a missionary wants to happen. Yeah. We want to be put out of our work. Yeah. <laughs> Joelle, what do you think Bible teachers across the world could learn from your Bible studies? Well, I think those who work with um, people who have a low educational background, I think they can learn a lot from it. Um, I think the majority of the world, uh, that their education does not teach them or encourage them to think for themselves. Mm. So I think doing this model of Bible study, using narrative, asking questions, helping people to think for themselves and really engage with the story is a method relevant for those working all over the world with those kinds of people. Joelle, it's been so, so amazing to hear about your life and your work in Cambodia. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. And I'm so glad that we're going to have you back on our next episode as well, as we talk a little bit more about some of the stuff you are teaching to these people in Cambodia. But thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. Yeah, you're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Matters podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not like and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts? 
The Bible Matters Project is funded entirely by the generous gifts of our listeners. And if you yourself would like to become a financial partner with us, you can find more details on how to give in the show notes. The Bible Matters Podcast is an initiative of St. Helens Bishopsgate and is created by myself, Leo Elborn, along with Tiff Stromso. Music for this episode was written and produced by me, Leo Elborn, and Josh Stidwell. You can listen to more of Josh's work at Stids with a one, that's S-T-1-D-S. Thanks again for joining and we hope to see you again soon.